Hayden Thompson here and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the pack heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. G'day, and welcome to episode 82, where today I have guest Jeff Ball, who is the founder and CEO of Thrive Provisions. Now located in Brant, Alberta and founded in 2018, Thrive Provisions is a CPG extension of four generations of cattle farming legacy arching back to 1940. With four Wagyu meat bar skews in the market that are free from artificial ingredients and found primarily in Albertan camping and outdoor stores, further distribution right across Canada is just starting to roll out. Today's episode with Jeff covers their full startup story along with some interesting conversation around the history of Wagyu cattle and some insight into the value of having full control over product quality, further diversification and additional revenue streams of the family business and why upholding best-in-class practices with the treatment of their land and animals and advocacy for these practices right across the industry is essential. It's a great episode for any producers growing and harvesting their own product and selling it out into the world. Enjoy. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. I uh, I came across your product at the CHFA. It was probably about six weeks ago. It's gone quick. And uh, I had the Wagyu beef with honey, lime, and black pepper, and it was awesome. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. We yeah. are very proud of the bars. Yeah, I bet you are. And uh, I'm excited to sort of dig into Thrive Provisions with you today, you know, the business model of getting out into the CBG world uh, with you. And I think it's kind of... Um, you know, it's going to be a unique story because you do have a serious background story with Borco feeders and the Borco group that you've developed and, you know, the family history on the, on the farm uh, that you've got out in Alberta. And, you know, I'd love to sort of, you know, go into the detail there. Cause I think there's going to be a bit of a great story um, and everything in between. So where'd you grow up? Where are you from? <laughs> well, I grew up right here, Brant, Alberta, uh, yeah. born and born and raised. Uh, I'll give you a little little background on the family. Yeah, I, please. I, my grandfather moved and bought the quarter here that I live on in 1940. Um, he was originally from the coal mining town of Michelle. Okay. And decided he wanted to be a farmer. So he became a farmer. Without any prior history of farming in the family? He married a, a uh, my grandmother. Yeah. Who family farms in the area. Okay. They farmed in the area for... I guess two generations before, yep. before that, but anyway, so, so the ball side of the family uh, had its beginnings in a coal mining town and decided to be a farmer. And uh, so he bought this home quarter in 1940 and basically just, you know, had no paradigms of, of what, you know, really farming should be. So uh, he basically, uh, you know, had some help, I guess, from from my grandmother's side mm-hmm. of the family yeah. to get established and bounce questions off of, and and I guess mentor a little bit in a way. Yeah, and had some great years here through the through the forties and fifties. We had they had tremendous crops. He was basically able to buy a, a quarter and pay it off in in one year. So wow. he had a fairly rapid string of of expansion. Um, and then my dad came along and of course he, uh, 
grew up having to farm, but he more, he liked the cattle side of things. So mm-hmm. he migrated into the cattle side on the, on the purebred and full blood. Uh, he imported Simital cattle from Switzerland. My parents have been all over the world in the cattle business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I, although I was connected to the land, I didn't really enjoy farming that much. And I didn't really enjoy the purebred full blood game. Mm-hmm. So I decided to uh, come back. I wanted to come back to the farm badly. And, After uh, university? Yeah, so you, so you went off to uni. What did you study? Uh, econ. Okay. Yeah. And so I decided to come back and I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I could do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the background helped me, you know, education wise and looked at the industry and thought that, you know, there's a lot of innovation that can happen, a lot mm. of technology that can be applied to, you know, to, to scale things. So yeah. um, as I kind of investigated more and more, I thought a feedlot looked like it would be perfect where we were. Um, and it was scalable. So something that was scalable and it yeah. could be, uh, you know, as as big as you wanted it to be. And there was demand for it as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, correct. Uh, yeah. Right around that time, uh, Cargill had built a big plant by High River, which is only 20 minutes away. So, you know, I was kind of tilting my, you know, future aspirations to, you know, having a relationship with Cargill and mm-hmm. and and moving in that direction. But I had no idea what a feedlot was. I, I mean, I did, but I didn't really know what the, you know, all the details are. It, it, it's quite technical when you, when I looked at it and it was really exciting because it was just right for a lot of innovation yeah. um, and technology. And, and uh, so we were early adopters in, in the software um, on the, on the that cattle side of things in the feedlot. So it started quite modestly. I rented a place that wasn't too far away uh, managed to get a thousand head in my first year. And this is in the early nineties, isn't it? 90, yeah, this is the early nineties. So I yeah. was, I think I was 23. Okay. I was fine. And, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, I was all in on it. Yeah. Like there was just no way that I wasn't going to do it. And, and luckily I had, you know, my, my dad who was, you know, never discouraged any of my wild ideas that I had. And I can tell you, I've had a few of them, but uh, yeah, uh, this is one that really stuck early and was one that I really wanted to develop. Um, so then in 95, I guess, I built uh, on a quarter that we had and started our own, my own feedlot and built it from the ground up, designed it all, made it flow, kind of made provisions for, uh, you, you know, expansion and kind of what it would finally look like. And, and uh, so I, I put a lot of thought in it and like, Modern style feedlots need to have slope uh, to drain water. Cattle and, and mud do not go well together. Yep. So yep. that was one of the things. And then be able to move cattle in and out of treatment facilities and and loading facilities yeah. as easily as possible and minimum stress. Uh, so we we uh, expanded quite rapidly there in the early years. Um, every, every time I had an extra dollar, I was building extra pens. And, uh, I think that was my, uh, you know, kind of my 
you know, foundation of how I was going to operate, you know, business-wise. Um, the, you know, the feedlot cash flowed quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was perfect for building ancillary businesses around it. And that's what we kind of did once we, you know, built to a size that, you know, our land base and our abilities could could reasonably, you know, uh, do it. Uh, and we kind of decided, I guess I did, decided to kind of be a mid-sized uh, feeding operation so we could pivot quite rapidly instead of, uh, you know, that's what you did if you wanted to be mid-sized or else you go all out and you just keep, you know, cornering the market. And what you see is, you know, yep. big corporate ra- yards now that, you know, have 100, 200,000 head of cattle in multiple sites, right? Yeah, it's right. pretty, yeah. pretty large. Um, that wasn't really something that excited me. You wanted to sort of keep it manageable within, you know, your own grasp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's what I did. Uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to develop it, be, you know, run it as well as possible, get mm-hmm. good key people in place that shared the vision, uh, implemented technology, um, did a lot of research and trials in conjunction with some consultants that we had, mm-hmm. um, really, you know, eked out a niche. And I, I guess about the same time, um, my dad, he discovered this funny breed of cattle. And, um, it was a Wagyu or Japanese breed of cattle mm-hmm. uh the particular one was a tajimab strain which was a black the black strain there's there's four different types of of wagyu cattle okay yeah i'm familiar uh, with kobe yeah so like the, the, tajima, the, <laughs> the tajima strain yeah. is the one that would be responsible for kobe beef right okay kobe is the region okay got you yeah so uh he was he you know because he was a a uh cattle guy and he loved his purebred and full blood cattle and, mm-hmm. and looking for different angles uh, he went all in and, and it was quite a pivot from Simital cattle which you know are big strapping milking uh, big boned you know top line and, and uh, you know big thick butts and muscled yeah, to yeah. something you know with a uh, you know just a different structure. Yeah, different pattern. shaped animal, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but we tried the beef, and we were like, oh "My gosh, gosh, we've we've been missing out on this forever." Mm-hmm. Is this what beef is really supposed to be like? Because you know, it was a real epiphany for myself. Because as kids, you know, we we ate the bowl that broke its penis. That's what we had in our freezers okay. all the time. Yeah. And I can tell you. It was not, it was not. It wasn't good. the best beef. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just needed a little bit more salt and pepper. Oh, wow. He yeah. had a strong jaw to chew it. Anyways. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, dad, he started developing the, the Wagyu. And so he went on on the purebred full blood side. He, he found a fifth bull or, or a, a line separate from the other four foundation uh, animals that were here that that was all that was outside of uh, uh, Japan at that time mm-hmm. so he partnered with a, a fellow named Don Lively out of Texas and he had the cows purebred cows and then we collected embryos 
and he started expanding uh, that line of bulls or that line of cattle based on the bull, which was Itotani the seventh was his name. And as it, as it, you know, <clears throat> moved down the line and we sold some bulls, then about 98, the floodgates opened and uh, a bunch of new genetics left Japan for North America and Australia. Okay. So, and that's just the semen, like the semen itself, or were you actually getting the, the base? Semen out? and cattle. So and the cattle. Yeah. Yeah. And to date, there's only about 225 individual animals that oh, wow. left Japan. That is the foundation for the Wagyu breed in, really? the, in the rest of the world outside yeah. of Japan. Yeah. So uh, in the early days, you know, with four, four bulls and you're trying to breed up using, you know, Angus cattle here in, in uh, North America. Yeah. Uh, lion breeding was an inherent problem. Um, you know, and as we progressed, uh, fertility and uh, some of the other desirable traits uh, would, mm. would uh, be significantly impaired until these new animals became available, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, around 1998. Uh, the majority of them were were Tajima or the black strain of of Wagyu. So that's kind of where I got my my start in the Wagyu business, and I was I had more than just a little bit of interest in it. Uh, you know, Dad was busy peddling embryos and and uh, selling genetics around the world, mostly to Australia. Wow, yeah, and uh, so we kind of Dad kind of slowed down, and and I had my hands full trying to run and expand a feedlot which is huge in your early 20s as well like, <laughs> yeah what a learning I, experience I, yeah I, you know just one more you know incremental task was yeah was a lot for me because i was i was all in yeah i can imagine uh, yeah I, uh, you know worked every day um you know i think my biggest stretch was probably 119 days in a row of you know 12 16 hour days yeah yeah it was incredible when i think back on what I did then. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the Wagyu cattle were always here. And we, I always had a small herd of cows because I felt obligated because dad had cows. Yeah. And they were, you know, the Wagyu influence. Uh, we just kind of had them around. So, um, so a few years went past and I got busy doing other things. Uh, I sat on a lot of industry organizations, if I remember back. Uh, I was on, actually, I was president of Alberta Cattle Feeders right during BSC, and that's was kind of a very tumultuous time at, at that point. Uh, now, you know, it was quite an event, but now, uh, you know, as I've, you know, lengthened my career here, I, you know, black swan events have become almost commonplace. Okay. Uh, with, with uh, you know, in, in the in the cattle industry anyways. Um, but anyways, BSE was, was quite a disastrous time for us. And what was that? Bovine spongiform encephalopathy. So oh, so it was a disease, cow. was it? Oh, mad yeah. cow disease. That's right. Yeah. And that came from Europe, didn't it? Correct. Yeah. So okay. There was some limited uh, infected cattle that came into, into Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And sent us in a tailspin. So what happened is all the countries that we had been exporting beef to shut the border down. And as 
Canada is, uh, you know, we, you know, only consumed, I think around that time, maybe 60% of what we produce beef wise. So right. all of a sudden we had a giant glut of beef yeah, and a bunch of cattle that, you know, have a shelf life. Yeah. Uh, they can't, they, you know, they, they continue to eat every day. They yeah. continue to gain weight every day. So it was quite a disaster actually. Uh, one day, you know, everything's going well. I'm, I'm into my final expansion at the feedlot and, uh, it's just a, you know, had all the underground work done, was ready to start building pens and then BSC hit and, you know, cattle were worth, you know, a buck three or five a pound at that particular time. And then the next day they were worth, you know, arguably they were worth zero. Actually, they were a liability. Um, um, it, it was, just unbelievable yeah uh, difficult time yeah how do you even respond to something like that you know like you know i can imagine that you know the bank would have come knocking on your door and said hey listen we need to chat about how we're going to work through this (laughs) (laughs) and you would have had some extremely sleepless nights you know because everybody and the other thing is everybody's in the same boat so like the good thing is is you weren't in it by yourself which is sort of similar to the COVID theme like everybody was in it together whether you're a restaurant or you know a cafe or a, a food producer you know everybody's business dried up overnight so you know i guess you'd already had a taste of it yes um we uh had I guess what I chose to do is not just sit around and feel sorry for myself. Yeah. I got involved. I got yeah. in the industry organizations. I was president of the Alberta cattle feeders through that, that time I was okay. on the Alberta beef producers, uh, feeder council. I was on, you, you name it. I was on yeah. it. I was livestock identification services. I was on Canadian beef grading agency. Yeah. I was trying to affect change from within, you know, uh, and, you know, at that particular time, um, you know, the industry wasn't, I'd say they wasn't the best um, at, you know, political activism. Okay. In fact, they were, you know, you know, they were almost uh, militant. Kind of, kind of, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they, you know, they, they really were not adept at, at, at maneuvering in the political arena and, and right. you know, and had built, you know, some pretty big walls. So okay. that's, you know, we learned very quickly if you wanted to get through this crisis, we had to like tear some of those walls down, yep. repair some of those relationships. And it took a lot of work. Uh, some of the big movers and shakers in the, in the feeding industry and in the cattle industry, we, we all, you know, got into the industry organizations and, and, uh, try to you know maneuver through the crisis um which you know basically was a 100 percent political mm. uh, event yeah um, i mean it was a it was a you know human safety thing back then right we, mm-hmm. we thought that it was going to be catastrophic but as it turned out it wasn't um yeah so i spent a lot of time in the industry organizations trying to affect change in in uh, the cattle industry uh, so we could, you know, repair some of our exports. Yeah. Um, and, you know, really looking at, you know, what the kind of benefits of the Canadian industry has, you know, like Alberta beef is, you know, very well recognized, you mm-hmm. know, mostly across Canada. And it's really, you know, important to Albertans mm-hmm. and to us. Um, but, you know, basically what we've, what, 
at that point in time, we've commoditized a very high quality uh, grain fed product that was very desirable in the world. And we mm -hmm. were getting commodity prices. So, you know, I always had an eye on that. There had to be something better, you know, like everybody believed in the cattle industry that the pie was only so big, right? So the rancher gets his share, the, the feedlot gets his share and the, and the, and the, and the uh, processor gets his share, yep. you know, and the, the size of each piece differs mm. uh, sometimes in the same week, but, yep. uh, but the pie is only so big, but I, yep. I always disputed that. I, always believed that differentiation and branding in the beef industry would serve us very well. And, you know, like, you know, I was looked upon as a, basically a heretic, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, well, you can't do that. Well, I, I don't Watch know this. any other. Hold my beard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we started playing with the Wagyu beef at that particular time. So yeah. you know, like we yeah. always had it because I loved eating it and, yeah. then, you know, it would be there, you know, from myself and then, for my family and then for my extended family and then yep. friends of the family. And yep. then pretty soon a restaurant wanted some of it. And that's yep. kind of how we kind of fell into it. But, you know, I had a failed attempt at it early on, you know, in, in the late nineties, it's just mm -hmm. the market wasn't there. The, the ability for people to identify Wagyu, mm. uh, you know, it was, you had to spend a lot of time explaining what it is. Yeah. Um, so it took some time to educate the market. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of the one of the big events that that happened that really helped us is the celebrity chef. Mm. Uh, chefs are quite transient; they go yep. all over the world, yep. they collect some of the best ingredients. Yep. You know, and then we had, you know, Jamie Oliver, yeah. Anthony Bourdain, yeah. uh, and, you know, and and Wolfgang Puck and yeah, and uh, Thomas Keller, some of these guys that are yep. just you know they're rock stars. Yeah, huge. Yeah, and it, you know they really developed. Uh, a taste for the Wagyu. I mean, most of those guys all have mm. or had at one time or another, or still do Wagyu on their menu that they use yeah. um, quite often. Um, so you know, that really helped. And so that was, you know, about 2007 or eight, I guess, mm -hmm. when that really started to take hold. And yep. of course it was earlier around the world, you know, like in Canada, it, it, like <laughs> it takes five years for us to catch up same thing in australia up. yeah 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 it's funny i um i've been to japan and when we we're in tokyo we went to a kobe beef restaurant and it was stunning like the meal was incredible probably the most i've ever spent on a steak in my life but don't regret it and uh and the other relationship that i have with wagyu is um so uh two things on my mum's side my mum's sister honey robin she married a farmer and similar story to yours they established their farm in the 1930s but they're a uh, merino a merino stud and uh so they're uh, raising and um growing wool really high quality wool but they also have wagyu on their farm as well so it, i'm not sure if it's for their own consumption or whether they're selling it out into the world either but um yeah pretty awesome and then the other one is my grandfather so on my mum's side too mum's dad he was a pig farmer and uh over in new zealand and brought the family across to australia when my mum was 12 in the 70s and uh, he was brought out to help develop and uh, and work on the Australian pig breeding programs and work on their genetic um, on their genetic pools. And he consulted into the US and in China, which was really cool. And my question was, you know, with the uh, Kobe coming out from Japan and uh, obviously um, starting their own breeding programs in Canada, has the you know are the cattle significantly different than you know now after how many generations of breeding and you know cross selection and so on uh, has it changed significantly from the cattle that sort of stayed within japan 
yes and no. Yeah. Uh, you know, Wagyu basically means Japanese cow, right? Okay. So okay. It, 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 it encompasses of you know, you know, their shorthorn, their pole, their okay. browns, their, yep. their black cattle, right? So, yep. and geographically, these cattle are, you know, isolated in little pockets, and, and yep. they're used for different reasons. So, yeah, the taquitas they were you know basically cart and packing animals and in, in uh, you know grain and and mining and then oh, the right. tajima were were rice paddy they they were tied to a plow and yeah and so that i mean this is how this kind of developed and then there was a brief period in the in the late 1890s to about 1904 mm-hmm. where they imported genetics so they you know shorthorn simitol angus uh, a whole host of oh, wow. different cattle, some Korean cattle, yeah, and they they crossbred them, yeah, and at some point in time they just decided that whoa I think we've reached where we wanted to be with this yeah. composite so we're, we'll yeah. just call it a day, and and so that's been their you know their gene pool for you know since 1904 or five it's closed right so yeah. Uh, so that they are composites and they are different than our cattle. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, and uh, we have limited genetics from Japan that we've been crossing with our own, you know, native cattle. Yeah. Which would arguably be probably better genetically than those cattle back in that they imported into Japan back in the, you know, early 1900s, yeah. late 1890s. Yeah. So they they are different. There's a little more muscling. Um, one of one of the things that has been a recent uh, development is is, is pulled. So you know if you've seen pictures of the wagyu cattle, they have those perfect you know curve up and out little horns. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've we've used a uh, Angus genetics to get the pole. So there's, there's a, there's a Celtic pole and then there's a Holstein pole. So we've been using the, the Celtic one to breed crossbreed into the Wagyu mm. to get rid of the horns because the industry here just doesn't really like horns. Right. Okay. And they're quite useful in Japan. You, you yep. put a rope around them and you can lead the cow around Got or, or, or ox around with, with it yep. and yep. you tie them to a stall. And that, that's, I mean, that's, hundreds of years of of breeding has yeah you know that was the useful tool was yeah. to, be able to, to use those horns uh, yeah so not so much here um uh, so that's the one of the different things that we've been doing in in north america and australia is developing the polled genetics but yeah. most most of these cattle outside of japan are all you know north american or australian yeah Angus primarily genetics yeah. that have been bred, but the, the the cattle for all, you know, that we use on the seed stock side, even though they're pulled, um, they're not full bloods, but they would be like 99.16 or 32% yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tajima. Okay. So, that, you know, they're very pure. And then the best part of the genetics that we w- were seeking on the Angus side is in there. So we have a little bit more muscling, um, and that, that comes from the Angus and the, and the, the pulled quality, right. is also from, from the Angus. I'm um, so fascinated by these breeding programs. Like essentially it's natural selection sped up by you doing the selection. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. amazing. And it must be awesome. Like 
you know, watching, you know, over time, like, you know, you got started in your early twenties and you were, you know, breeding at that stage and, you know, looking at the, the genetic gene pool that you had back then to where you are now and, you know, noticing the improvements year over year or, you know, uh, what would you call it? Um, generation to generation must be, you know, pretty rewarding. Yeah, it is. I mean, we still have a long ways to go. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things that I want to, you know, improve on what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it'll be better for the cattle and the yeah. environment and everything yeah. else, right? Yeah. It, it kind of all goes hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. But I've been at it for, you know, 30 some years, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it just, it never ends to try to get the perfect animal. Yeah. And then to find it that it's repeatable, right? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like temperament, uh, muscling, marbling, which is important, obviously, yeah. in, in uh, the Wagyu. Yeah. Uh, retail, retail meat yield. What's your box yield rate? That's important. Yeah. Uh, feed efficiency, rate of gain, all those. There's a lot of, you know, metrics that yes. we're, we're looking at yeah. constantly. Yeah. Uh, and the production cycle in the Wagyu is like long. Is it? Okay. Very long compared to, you know, the the commercial cattle that we have as well right so from basically from you know conception to you know being able to harvest that animal is three years okay yeah and so what's the average feedback, time on a yeah that feedback loop is you know basically that long yeah yeah um you know but now we're able to you know we we, we take uh off all the offspring we we uh dna them and then we can we can we can track them to that sire and then through the system and we've been doing that for a number of years now about seven or eight years yeah. it's yeah. not cheap but it sure helps in, i can imagine yeah in uh going forward and developing mm -hmm. i can imagine the technology has changed over the years and you mentioned you know back when you were getting the feedlot started you know the implementation of technology was really important to you because you saw that it wasn't really being utilized at the time but you know throughout the early 90s to where we are today that's a, a huge period of time for technology to change and shift so you know i can imagine constant upgrades in that space would have been pretty critical for you too so how many iterations on the technology that you've had in that in that world have you made oh my goodness dozens yeah it, it is incredible um you know, one of the biggest things is trying to piece all the software together so mm. that, you know, <laughs> you have some sort of communication in between yeah. them. And then it's been, it, it's just, sometimes it just doesn't work yeah. as much as you try. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started, we had cards. So you, I would have, you know, like yeah. a recipe card and I yeah. would, you know, write it out and, you know, like pen three gets, you know, 1000 pounds of <laughs> this, you know, barley silage and supplement. Yeah, and then that was it. And then at the end of the day, I would enter it all into a, some sort of spreadsheet, and yeah. and that's how I kept track of it. Got now, it. now we've got to this, you know, the abilities. Then the software now are, you know, real time. I can sit here on my phone and see where each feed truck is, mm. what ration it has on, how long it mixed, how close it was to getting all the ingredients on it. Um, you know, if it pulls up to the wrong pen, it the it won't let them feed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. Like it, it's all real time. It's all it's all wireless. Um, you know, uh, you know, we very early on we used a company that uh, you know basically we have um, a health record for every individual animal mm. that comes into our system. So we know, you know, on our on our Wagyu side, we certainly know 
you know, all that information, but even yeah. on our commercial side, the minute it arrives at the feedlot, we have, you know, a health record. We know how much it weighed. We know, you know, what vaccinations it got. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every time it goes through a checkpoint, we can, you know, we, you know, it adds to the record and we know, it, you know, now it weighs this much and it's probably going to be ready for market in, you know, in four weeks Yeah, yeah. or, or four months. Yeah. And, and, so being able to tie all this together and, and on the commercial side of things, you know, risk management is, is, is huge, right? Mm. The, the margins on cattle are so small, uh, you know, and we are a margin operator, uh, mm-hmm. being able to utilize tools, you know, you know futures markets, foreign exchange, uh, you know, uh, insurance programs, whatever it may be, like mm. we were analyzing all of it all the time, or, you know, just contracts with, with processors. Mm. So either a basis contract or a flat price or a grid price. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we did early on is got involved in developing a grid with, with, with Cargill. So then I had, was able to not, you know, beat the bushes and negotiate a price for cattle every single day that I wanted to sell cattle. I just said, here, my cattle are all going to come your way. Uh, Let's develop something that, you know, is mutually beneficial. You give me something to, you know, shoot for on what we're trying to develop that you want. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in return, you know, I get a base price plus you know, some sort of premium. Yeah, yeah. For the for the arrangements. So, that's a that's a I guess a true product market fit. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the simplest form. Yeah, and you, I mean, you can argue. I mean, it's it's really not price discovery. I mm-hmm. mean, we're relying on you know a small number of cash cattle traded to establish the market. Yeah, yeah. And you can argue, you know, how many of those percentage wise you know, you need to actually, you know, establish an accurate market, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's the, that's kind of the way I, I, uh, operated. So we would just, you know, we would buy feeder cattle coming in, you know, whatever month we wanted to get them to go out. And we know, you know, you know, eight months from now, you know, 200 head from pen or lot five are, are going to go that week, right. To Cargill. Yeah. And I don't have to sit and argue over pennies and trying to get them sold yeah 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 it sounds extremely precise and i guess that's the value of having having data at your fingertips like you know exactly where you are at any one stage um i see a lot of correlation between what you're doing in the coffee industry actually i've I've come from the coffee industry before i landed Mm. in packaging here and uh you know there is a commodity market a c market they call it which fluctuates just like the um like with trading and uh and foreign exchange and so on however there is a um you know a specialty coffee grade you know which is anything that's 85 points and above when they're grading the coffee and for the longest time like you know there was a lot of criticism and exactly the same thing that you sort of found you know getting into the market in the 90s with wagyu people didn't understand it and they you had to do a bit of education same thing with coffee like there are a lot of producers back at origin that were growing amazing coffee you know different varietals and you know all had their unique qualities and you know characteristics and so on but to get a premium 
you know, they really had to sort of educate the market, really get it into the hands of roasters in the Western world um, who valued the coffee to sort of push it out at that premium price as well so that it would trickle down. But um, the thing that really changed the needle was, um, you know, a lot of the, the roasters and the coffee buyers going to origin and building direct trade relationships with the farmers over there and, um, and you know, paying the, the farmer a, uh, a, um, a premium for their quality of coffee that was well-deserved and, the specialty coffee industry is just unlike anything else. It's, you know, right now it's, it's growing and it's a significant portion of the market and it's taken time to develop. But the one thing that's, you know, significantly um, impacting the coffee industry right now is climate change. Like they're finding that a lot of these coffee growing regions around the world, which is, you know, a very fine line around the equator, you know, the, the climate is shifting and it is changing, you know, these little pockets around the world and are changing the, um, you know, the, the the growing cycles but because they're having longer and wetter seasons there's a lot of funguses and you know a lot of um, disease and rotten issues that they're dealing with too so um a lot of a lot of change in the world in terms of coffee and i wanted to sort of bring it across to you in the cattle breeding world because you know there's a lot of talk right now about sustainable um you know farming practices and the value of having you know uh, cattle grazing on grasslands and sort of you know the regenerative nature and of keeping soil healthy and keeping carbon sequestered in the soil and so on and i wanted to sort of touch on that with you because i think it's a really important part of the discussion on um, on the meat industry and meat consumption in general that it can be done uh it can be done with sustainability in mind and you know proper agricultural practices that have been you know practiced for hundreds of thousands of years most likely and seem to have been forgotten about um for a certain period of time because of the fact that we scaled very very quickly to feed huge populations of people so where are you guys at there because and I've sort of tied a few things in one, so forgive me for that. But I did read on your website that you said, we are visionaries who embrace change and opportunities for exporting, um, exploring different avenues of success. And I wanted to sort of dig into that with you because it sounds to me as if you've taken that very seriously as well. Yeah, I think uh, kind of out of necessity, I've yeah. adopted that as kind of my everyday. Yeah. Um, you know, we've, We've pursued different avenues, like I said, building ancillary businesses that work yeah. well together and have a good outcome. I mean, uh, I tell my staff all the time, you know, you know, to ask yourself two questions all the time. Is it is it the best thing for the animal and is it the best outcome for them? So you know, that's what we're all about is taking care of the, you know, the animals and, yeah. and everything else you know, that we've adopted, you know, like our uh, rail transload facility, you know, that's extra security to get, you know, feed grains in when we run into drought situations like we did this last year. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we, are, we have a trucking business, we have, you know, commodity trading, and we have, uh, you know, we, we've, we've built all these ancillary businesses around, um, you know, trying to get more margin out of the whole system. But mm -hmm. in the end, it's the best thing for the cattle. Yeah. Um, and as things have developed here, I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've become more efficient. We've been able to adopt practices that make cattle more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and making cattle more efficient is usually, you know, just handling them and reducing stress. I mean, if you have any stress at all, it impacts. I mean, you know, just look at yourself. Yeah. 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 If you have any stress, I mean, what, what do you do? I, I quit eating. I know that's, 
that's I, what I do. I ate more. <laughs> Although it doesn't look like it right now. <laughs> I almost shed all my COVID weight recently. But anyhow, um, you know, the other things that we're looking at, you know, when we're not in crisis, uh, you know, and, and the whole COVID mm-hmm. yeah, episode was particularly hard on, on uh, the primary production guys on the cattle side of things, yeah. or all livestock, actually. Uh, and they, uh, and the big winners were, uh, you know, well, the processing companies, mm-hmm. they, they were, you know, it was the real bottleneck. There was a tremendous amount of cattle trying to all get the same hook space, you know, and there was a limited amount of hook space because they slowed them down. Right. And then we've just never been able to catch up. Okay. Um, it, it severely impacted us on a, being able to participate in the uh, in the inflation side of things uh, as everything has mm-hmm. gone up, but what we receive for the cattle has not uh, kept up with what the cost of the inputs have. The mm-hmm. grains have, we've never seen higher inputs as we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll get back to that. So one of the other things that has been happening and we're we're working on it uh, quite diligently with a, with another company is implementing a uh, bio uh, dryer or digester. So we're going to you know move to have the manure put through a facility that captures you know brown gas mm-hmm. uh, and then in turn you know either sell the brown gas in as energy a, like an energy, as energy. okay yeah yeah. yeah or burn it for electricity. Yeah. Right. Uh, so then, you know, you're left with a very fibrous dry product coming out the backside that that doesn't smell. You re- recoup uh, the the water, yeah. which, you know, is almost medical grade by the time it goes through the system. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just one more thing that we can do that, yeah. uh, you know, keeps the, you know, recycling the nutrients yeah. and, and having smaller impact on the environment all the time, but it, it is also out of, out of necessity as well, where we're looking for yeah. all the margin we can. Yeah. Um, so is it creating like a, a naturally sort of derived fertilizer that you can put back onto the soil? Correct. Is yeah. that what it is? Okay. Really high in nitrogen and so on. Yeah. 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 Awesome. It's, yeah. And you know, it's transportable, you know, like in the old days we yeah. had just wet manure and you haul yeah. it you know, not very far because, yeah. you know, it's expensive to haul a heavy water yeah. yeah, yeah, and you spread it, you know, however, you know, kind of suited you at that time. Yeah. And, yeah. But as we got into it, you know, there's a lot more in, you know, just on the manure side, right? Yeah. We have an agrologist that that's, you know, looking at it all the time. We know how much water is in, you know, moisture content of the manure, what all the nutrients look like, yeah. what the what the removal rate of the last crop was and how yeah. where where the manure needs to go and at what rate. Yeah. Uh, so you know that it's very it's also tightly regulated mm-hmm. by by the NRCB here in Alberta. Um, but we also you know want to be able to do this, you know, another generation so we're going to take care of it is you know not only within what we're told to do but within mm. the confines of what you know we think is you know you know uh, you know sort of good business and environmental yeah, yeah practices yeah that's yeah. awesome yeah and i can imagine a significant investment up front for that biodigester too uh 
Yes, everything's yeah. expensive. Yeah. Where's that technology coming from? Is it coming from Europe or is it something developed here in North America? And Well, there's certainly, uh, you know, the biodigester stuff is is being developed in Europe and in, in America. The yeah. bio dryer is yeah. a technology here in Canada. Okay. Um, you know, there, there's some, you know, issues that we're going to have to deal with, like, you know, inorganic material that mm-hmm. gets into the dryer. I mean, the, the biodigesters just don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what some places have done is basically they've cemented the whole uh, feeding area. Yeah. So the cattle are on cement and then, then there's no outside contamination into the, into the manure Okay. that they recover to go into a biodigester or yeah. whatever they, 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 they're trying to do. Got you. Yeah, I could talk to you about this all day. I find this stuff, it's so fascinating. Um, but I would love to touch on Thrive Provisions, which you launched in 2018. And I think it's really unique that you've gone out there, as you said, you've got a few businesses that you've uh, inserted into um, bowl, you know, into your business, Bolco, and one of which is your CPG brand, Thrive Provisions. And, you know, at what stage did you decide or, you know, see the necessity or the, you know, the market for a, a CPG brand to be developed? Well, there, there's probably there's two reasons why. Yep. Uh, one, uh, back around that time, I was uh, uh, doing obstacle racing. I was doing half marathons, and then graduated into uh, full full marathons. Oh, congratulations! And uh, then I got into CrossFit. So yep. don't hold that against me. Not, not I, at all. I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it it keeps me limber and and yeah. uh, you know when you get older it's strength. a hell of a mental exercise as well oh, as physical it, it yeah. absolutely is yeah you, like you have to focus every time yeah. you yeah touch a bar there anyways yeah uh, and through traveling uh, doing obstacle races I, I, I and I used to basically travel you know twenty weeks a year wow. for one reason or another yeah. Um, I had have some business interests in China, so I would be over there, yeah. you know, every quarter. So you know, I, I really rocked up the air miles and, yeah. uh, and, you know, I just hated that I didn't have anything that I could just, you know, eat yeah. that was nutritious. I understood all the, yeah. all the ingredients in it and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it was shelf stable preferably beef and then they on the other side i had all this wagyu so you know 40 percent of of a you know carcass is all primal cuts that's mm. really easy to move the other 60 percent you know inside outside round you know and it trim nice you know, to tell beef. yeah yeah so yeah it, it's great so like how do you generate you know a 20 or 30 percent premium yeah. from oxtail yeah uh, or inside outside round or yeah it was very tough in those early years when we were when we were in the in the fresh meat side of things. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a double thing. I I was satisfying something that I, you know, saw for myself that I could would be quite useful, and I was going to be able to generate uh, a little more margin out of uh, products that was difficult to move or difficult to get enough money out of to cover costs because mm-hmm. raising wagyu is is more expensive than than regular beef just due to the hands-on nature of it yes yeah um, you know like our typical production on our commercial cattle is about 150 days and, yeah. and wagyu can be you know 450 to 550 yeah. days yeah yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you grow them slow, take care of them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. you get tired of seeing the same animal for like 500 <laughs> Having days. the same conversations every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, very good. So it was sort of born out of your own necessity. And, you know, did you start to produce something in your kitchen to sort of get the product developed? Or did you work with a team and say, hey, this is what my vision is here. Execute. Like, what was your sort of approach? Well, I I guess it was a simultaneous approach with trying to develop, you know, everything else that I was trying to do. Yeah. And, and uh, so it was a very small team. There was me and one other person. I, I found somebody who was like, gung-ho believed in what my vision was yeah and and uh her and i just you know sat and you know and worked at it and mm-hmm. both being neophytes we had no paradigms on what we we're supposed to do yeah uh we we basically just stumbled around and, and uh, i shouldn't say that we stumbled around i mean it, we we uh had an idea of what we needed to do so we First, the big step was tagging up with the Center of Excellence in, in Calgary, which is an yes. industry-funded organization that promotes beef, Canadian beef specifically. And they loved the idea, and they took the project on, and and we had a great time with them. Um, the the chefs there spent a lot. They it was it was fantastic. Yeah, uh, we we came away with that with eight recipes. Uh, we have four SKUs out of that mm-hmm. currently. Um, and, uh, well, we didn't have it, we didn't have it, uh, a commercializer shelf stable at that point in time. Yep. So then we moved it, everything up to Lacombe to the incubator up there. And we mm-hmm. worked with a guy named Craig. He's called the meat scientist and he also loved what we were doing. Yep. And, um, uh, he spent a lot of time at it and, uh, we, you know, we, came away with a commercialized recipe. So we were ready to head to the, to the co-packers, but simultaneously what was happening is we were working with an ad agency on, you know, developing the brand. What, what do we call it? Packaging mm-hmm. and uh, kind of all the, all the wording around trying to get the, you know, the brand. Yeah. And I love the brand that you've developed as well. It's beautiful. I, um, did you have a couple of ideas as to sort of how you wanted to present out into the world or was it sort of one vision that you hadn't said, guys, this is it, put it together for me. Uh, I wish I could say that. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I kind of have done that with almost everything else, but this was, this was something different. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, you know, we all believed in, in the product. Yeah. Uh, we yep. really wanted to make sure that we did everything correctly. Now, uh, my, I'm, I'm really happy with the, the, mm. the outcome. Yeah. Uh, wasn't happy with how much it cost. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it's like this, this advertising brand development thing can, yeah. is, is just a bottomless pit. Yeah. I and, can and, imagine. And I tried to get, you know, tried to get it as, you know, as, as, you know, budget conscious as possible, but still, you know, I, I think in a year and a half, we burnt through about 250,000. You're joking. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. I I even, I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. 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 I'll tell you what I did. Yeah. Uh, uh, You know, and a few times, even not. You know, recently I, I was like, "Geez, I'm. I can't believe I spent that much money doing yeah. that part." Yeah, yeah. 
but I mean, it is necessary. I mean, we, yeah. we've used, you know, most of that stuff, the language, the, yeah. the demographics that yeah. we're targeting in the social media, you yeah. know, it's just being still implemented and we're yeah. getting payback from that now. Good. You're seeing a return on that investment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, listen, mate. So you launched into the market with four SKUs or did you launch with one or two and then sort of develop it from there or? Yeah, we launched with two. So we had the cracked pepper and lime and then we had the maple apple blueberry. So yeah. sweet and savory and then, yeah. you know, something a little spicy. And, uh, you know, I, and my, my preference was the cracked pepper and lime. I just love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, That's the uh, one that I had. It's delicious. Yeah. 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 And anyways, I just thought it would sell, you know, two to one. Yeah. Anyways, not true. The, the, yeah. Like within, you know, like a box or two. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of being pretty equal. Yeah. So that's what we started with was the two. And then we developed, well, then we brought on two more. I, I mean, I probably wouldn't have done it in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Uh, until we were a little more established. Yeah. But then the, the other ones that we brought on was coffee. Cacao. Yeah. I saw that coffee cacao. Yeah. I know. Really unique. And uh, the, the other one, which, I also like is the uh, chorizo. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we're still kind of playing with it, trying to get the, you know, the texture and the, yep. the moisture and everything else just right. I mean, we've really spent a lot of time at that. Yeah. Um, you, you, you're looking at things in the marketplace with what could be a potential competitor, right? It's mm. a, a meat snack. I mean, we, there's a lot of jerky out there. We think we're, we're pretty unique. So yep. we're not jerky. No. Yeah, uh, I think that messes people up a lot. Yeah, and we're not like an extruded meat stick either. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you know, there's two different grinds. Yeah, uh, sizes, you know, uh, of dyes that we use to grind the the product and yeah. form it. Yeah, into the bar. So I wanted to make sure that it was soft, you know, and we had the fine stuff so we can mix the flavors throughout it, and then the coarser grind to have that little bit of, you know you know mouth feel of of beef right a bit so, of chew yeah yeah better yeah. a bit of chew and, and and lots of flavor in that yeah i think we've pretty much accomplished that yeah yeah i agree and mate timing couldn't be better for you as well because obviously keto is a growing market out there as well and you know people are, look, are looking for that keto or protein-based snack that's really healthy and got clean ingredients too so um yeah i can only see you know the market further expanding um as you're you know further growing i know you've got great presence in alberta and a little bit here in bc but you know what's your strategy for growth into um you know across the country hmm. well we've we took our time and in finding a uh, distributor that could take us nationally. Yeah. Um, I, I think we found that and we just, you know, we've been with, with purity about uh, three months now and, mm -hmm. and, you know, we quoted them. They quoted us. I don't know which, maybe it was mutual <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for quite some time, you know, along with others. So, we, you know, we're really relying on them to, to, uh, to help us along that journey. And, uh, you know, like to, CHFA show was in mm. Vancouver was tremendous for us in getting a lot more visibility in the West. And yep. then September will be to the Toronto show. Oh, good. You're going to be there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, lots of interest from Quebec uh, and Ontario, obviously. So yep. we're, we're trying to get product out there for sampling yep. um, some of the, the bigger companies, but still we want to be, you know, what our, set demographic is right we don't want to cheapen our product down uh, we we think we're a premium mm. product i mean we have a pretty uh premium raw material going into yeah to a snack food right so yeah. 
we want to be we're trying to be very careful where we're positioning ourselves and not to you know dilute it down mm-hmm. um you know make sure that we're in the right spot so you know the golf courses the hunting yeah. and camping uh, outfitters yeah. uh, going to all the marathons and tending samples out and and you know just really trying to get it in everybody's hands that we possibly can to try because i mean when they do try it they they buy it right so yep yep that's that's the strategy and you know simultaneously as we've been going through that process with with our national distributor uh we have some provincial ones as well i should add mm-hmm. and then uh you know we've been working on piecing together a u.s launch here which should be fairly quickly yep congratulations um, on that are you going to attack the west coast first yeah yeah, yeah we we are yeah um We'll have a little more competition. I mean, there are there, there are some interesting products in the U.S. that yeah. you know that that are you know, the snack food thing is it's huge, a big big beast down there. So. Oh, it's insane! And like I've said it a couple of times on the podcast, but like the whole population of Canada or Australia, for example, like you know both very similar sized populations, uh, encapsulated in uh, California alone. So I mean, just being on the West Coast, you the the amount of exposure that you could potentially have there is so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exciting and daunting yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like we can just pick up the phone and more product just magically shows up. We yeah. have to really be careful yeah. on how how we, you know, you know what we promise, and you know, mm. you can't overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah, I just never want to do that. Yeah, I knew uh, you had a. Sorry, I knew you had a, a great like a grand scheme for this i knew the i i had a feeling well i sort of knew just by the way that it was packaged up that your vision was to go big with this because you've gone into a thermoform product like a, a thermoformer in itself is you unli- like limitless in terms of scalability so that would have been pretty intentional to partner up with a, a co-packer or a co-manufacturer that had a thermoformer too yeah so yeah the whole co- finding a co-packer situation yeah. was was just a tremendous exercise yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it was very unique product. Yeah. Difficult to manufacture. Yeah. As I was told, I'm like, wait, come on, mate. <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> it's just a meat bar. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, don't you guys make these all the time? Yeah. But no, it wasn't like that. Um, you know, and then finding a federal, yeah. you know, a federal plant that can, yep. you know, ship across interprovincially was, was another task. And anyways, we found a situation that suited us and suited them as well so yeah. um we, we had to buy some equipment yeah uh, for the packaging side of things that that helped them out and helped us out so did you buy a thermoformer uh they had a they had it but what we had to buy i'm sorry not the packaging equipment uh, the tooling to buy the, the tooling the tool yes. set yeah 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 we've been in a we've gone through that process a few times with some of our clients here as well yeah yeah and tooling's yeah. not cheap uh no <laughs> no, and it, you know, came out of Germany, and it was yeah. eight to ten weeks. And yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to like, oh yeah, let's get going. Oh no, got to wait. It's for a late the, time here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm sure they probably flew it out, so it was a little bit quicker, but a little <sighs> bit more expensive too. So yeah, these things, like you said, it just adds up over time, doesn't it? Um, with all of that in mind, if you had the opportunity to go back and whisper in your ear when you were getting started with Thrive, with the knowledge that you have now, what would you tell yourself? I would first off, probably the only thing I would have told myself is, you know, you got a great idea. Go find someone in the industry who's a rock star yep. who's knows, you know, 
the, the what's involved in in launching a product and getting it to market. Yeah. That's what I would have done. Yeah. Um, I, but I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. I mean, mm. it took a little more time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess we had a little little more blood on our hands than we would otherwise. But I mean, I wouldn't have traded the experience for 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 you know for much yeah. at this point in time. Um, you know, we're expanding the team. You know, just about every month here now. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, people are really getting on board with it. They're really excited. I, I, I have a renewed vigor about uh, Thrive, especially after the trade show in Vancouver. Yeah. It was yeah, really, um, you know, re- reinforcing that the vision I had yep. and the product was, was you know, what I thought it would be. Uh, there was, you know, there's some dark moments, you know, if you're trying to launch and then you're in, in uh, you know, lockdowns and, retailers and distributors weren't taking samples you couldn't even get them to return a call and you know it was it was tough launching in the middle of covid Um, yeah you know a lot of things were tough in covid i'm not gonna make light of you know oh poor me you know yeah i'm trying to launch a product you know that there was actually you know people getting sick and i recognized that Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. really sick so i i just wanted to preface that yeah, no worries. You know, and I guess, you know, you mentioned it before, you know, back when the um, the mad cow disease hit, like your approach was to just get busy. That was your approach this time around as well. Just get busy. Just get busy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's what we did. I mean, there was enough things going on, uh, you know, drought. Yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, lack of processing capacity, backing cattle up. Um, yeah. And actually getting the cattle processed to mm-hmm. get the product was, was, was difficult. That seems to be a bit of a common theme with you, you know, finding a, you're noticing a problem and you're finding your own solutions, which essentially is like the entrepreneurial gift that you seem to have. And uh, you've got a few irons in the fire, mate. You're a, yes. you're a busy man. <laughs> yeah. I have a good, I have a good core of people that uh, yeah. take care of stuff for me. Yep. And, you know, I rightly or wrongly, I've always adopted the, the idea that, you know, give you know, get the right people in yep. the right spot and then yep. give them a lot of rope. Yeah. 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 That's a great and approach. Just, I, I don't really care if you make a bad or, you know, a good decision, just make a decision. Yeah. Make a decision Only. and learn from a bad decision yeah. too. Yeah. Um, one more question. If we could fast forward a year from now and you could say to me that you'd had your best year ever, what would you have accomplished? <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I think, you know, without trying to make it too crazy, uh, a, a year from now, if I could have this all in place, all my pieces that I've been accumulating, yep. you know, working efficiently. So, you know, controlling the, the, the genetics, mm-hmm. growing, growing the cattle, moving them into a production system, being able to, to, to harvest them and using whatever uh, byproducts of that production uh, waste yeah. to be recycled, generate energy, yeah. and then producing a branded product on the, on the other side. Yeah. Uh, that would, that would, I mean, that would be complete for me, I think. It's I, a serious closed-loop solution. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I'm sure I'll, you know, you know, get distracted by another squirrel between <laughs> now and then. So, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, on the, on the thrive side, you know, we also have, you know, we're innovating. We have, 
some other products that we're going to be coming awesome. to market here very soon too. Yep. So we're really excited about them. We'll bring it on, Jeff. I've really enjoyed our conversation today, mate. I could chat with to you for another hour, no doubt. But listen, mate, I know that you are busy, so I will let you go. Um, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you and have a chat or continue the conversation, what's the best way to go about it? Well, you can look me up on the website, Balco, or else just email me, jeff at balco.ca. Awesome. I will throw those details down in the show notes. Uh, for everybody listening out there, I hope you all enjoyed the conversation with Jeff as much as I did. There was a lot to be learned here. And uh, I guess my key takeaway is that, uh, you know, as you suggest, having the right people around you to execute on your vision is critical. And uh, yeah, I love the story because, you know, you've taken this generational business and, you know, further extended it out into the world. And yeah, hats off to you, Jeff, for all of the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you very much, Amy. All right. Take care. It. No, you're Bye. welcome. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for taking the time out of your busy day to join me for today's episode. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation or if you've got any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn or Instagram at thepackheavypodcast. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how I can help you with your business and your packaging vision, feel free to drop me a line and we'll continue the conversation there too. I'll see you next week.